Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Have you ever anticipated something greatly and uh, then been told there, uh, there would be a delay before, before it happens? That can be very disappointing. I can remember uh, getting ready to graduate college and uh, going for my senior uh, to my senior advisor, and and uh, you know you pay the fees, you pay them for everything, and then they charge you again to get your diploma. You know how that works, and and I can remember being told by the advisor that that uh, that she had missed a 100 level course. And that I was going to have to take that course before I could get my diploma. That was greatly disappointing. Maybe you're still scarred today by being promised a trip to Disney World that was delayed or something like that. Yeah, Corky is. Well, I want to tell you, the disciples had, uh, had to deal with something much more significant than a delay in anything like that. They were anticipating the kingdom of the Messiah, their Messiah, that they'd been following for three years. And Jesus tells them it's coming, but, but several things are going to have to happen first. We're actually entering a new section in the Gospel of Mark, and, and one that we want to pay very close attention to because, because it directly applies to us today. As you know, we've been tracking along. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of the week, and he's been asserting his authority over the, over the temple. He's, uh, He's attacked the corrupt financial practices of the leaders that was in the triumphal entry. He's been going about freely teaching and uh, uh, preaching the, the, the true gospel to thousands and thousands of Jews that have been there for the Passover. We just got through the confrontation section where, where Jesus just dismantles all of the, the temple rulers with, as they present him these seemingly unanswerable questions and he just leaves them uh, with their mouth gang, uh, uh uh, gaping open. And in the final act of, of dominion, he, he turns to the crowd and then he publicly condemns the, the entire system that props up false religion and then abuses the poor. There's, there's nothing praiseworthy about a widow being re- rendered poorer in God's name. She is to be under God's special care. And God didn't create a system like that. She gave all and they took all. And that's not something that God rejoices in. In fact, the law and God's economy is set up to protect the poor, not to abuse them. And they had turned their system into, uh, into something that preyed upon the poor and, and, and exalted them, th- themselves. And that was Jesus' final message that he gave in, in public. He warns about the kind of religion that, that God condemns, self-righteous and abusive of others. And and that actually triggers this, this warning uh, about the destruction of the temple. The disciples are, are marveling at all the votive gifts that are hanging on the temple and the temple itself. And Jesus says, let me tell you what's going to happen to this system and this structure. And, and Nate read that to us in verses 1 and, and 2 of Mark chapter, chapter 13. And that prophecy, that statement from Jesus created some significant questions for for the disciples, the disciples were good Jews, and, and they knew about God's promise of, of a kingdom and a kingdom to Israel. So, so Jesus' statement about the temple's destruction perplexes them. They knew there was supposed to be a kingdom, and they knew that the temple 
would be in the center of the kingdom. The disciples were premillennialists. They were. They expected the Messiah to come premillennia, prior to the thousand-year kingdom. And they expected a literal kingdom, and they expected Israel to be part of it. They knew the book of Ezekiel, which describes the temple that will be in this literal kingdom. And now here is the Messiah, and He has come prior to the kingdom, and they expected the kingdom to come with a temple in the middle of it. But now Jesus says this temple is going to be torn down. And for the next 35 verses, the Lord answers their questions about that. He describes for them what the present will look like while they're waiting for this kingdom to come. He tells them what the future will look like, and he will he tells them what what it's going to be when the way is going to come. I mean, the passage from uh, all of chapter thirteen is this discourse about the kingdom and and Christ's coming, and it outlines pretty simply. We're going to cover the first thirteen verses today, and that's the present. What happens between His first and second comings? Verses 14 through 23 is all about future tribulations. Verse 14, the abomination of desolation standing. That's all about the future. We'll get there. And then in verse 24 through 37, through the end of the chapter, is is all about Christ's second coming. It's going to come like lightning. This is private teaching to the disciples only. And it is the longest answer, are you ready for this, to any question that Jesus gives in Scripture. This is the longest answer to any question where Jesus just just starts teaching, starts talking. It's surely the longest one in Mark. But as I said, there's another reason for us to pay attention to it. It's about an event that we are waiting for. This is specific instructions to the disciples. This is specific instruction to us today. Because Jesus is telling us exactly what is going on in our world and what is yet to come. It's not something that's, that has happened and so we're learning from the disciples. This is what's going on and what we should expect in our world today as we anticipate the, the coming of the Lord. The first time Jesus came, you know, He came as the Lamb of God to take away our sin. That's history. The second time He comes, that's future, He'll come as the Lion of Judah to judge sinners, and that's a future promise. And in between, we're in the period that Jesus is describing here in Mark chapter 13. And Jesus informs us that the kingdom is coming, but there's going to be a pause before it comes. And between now and then, the world is going to continue as it has since the fall. It's going to get worse and worse until finally a period of increased difficulty called the tribulation period. And we've been looking at that on Sunday nights. And then He's going to come. The disciples were premillennialists, And Jesus was not a postmillennialist. if you listen to these verses. Jesus does not predict in these verses the church saturating the earth and then handing over a blissfully submitted globe to Jesus upon His return. That's not what this teaches. You will saturate the earth as His witnesses in prevailing error, in catastrophes, in wars, in persecution, and rejection, and then I will come. That's what Jesus says if you want to summarize Mark 13. 
and Jesus is preparing His disciples for the pause between the first and second coming. He knows that they won't understand why the end doesn't come immediately. Jesus knows all things. And He's preparing them for what they're to do until that end does come. They're to be aware. They're not to be frightened. They're to be on guard. They're to be busy witnessing. Because all of these things are going to happen during this pause. If you look at this passage in the macro, you'll understand it. The big picture. Don't get hung up on on uh, what wars or what catastrophes or is this Hitler or whatever. That, that's not the point. The point is what is taking place between the first and second coming. And to answer the disciples' two questions that I'll show you in just a minute. Jesus is saying His kingdom is not coming yet. And in between, there are going to be false Christs, there are going to be, there's going to be wars and catastrophes and persecutions, and yet a gospel witness. And you are that, that witness. He's not saying that life after He leaves is going to be filled with wars, famines, and catastrophes as if that's something new. He's saying the earth is going to continue the way that it has since the first man sinned. And then sin will compound and get worse, and that's going to culminate in a really bad time right before the Lord comes, and then He's going to come and fix it all. That's the big picture of human existence. It's not going to get better. Better comes when He comes. And He's preparing the disciples that way. So here is the outline for the first 13 verses. When the kingdom will come. That's what Jesus begins with. And He... There's a, there's a reasonable question asked by the disciples, and then there's a revealing answer that the Lord gives. This is all about when the kingdom will come. And there's a reasonable question that's from the disciples, and then there's a revealing answer from the Lord. Let's look at the first one, the reasonable question from the disciples. Look, if you would, at verse 3. It says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. So Mark tells us very clearly that Jesus has left the temple. He's on the opposite side of the temple in the Kidron Valley in the olive groves. He can still see the temple. The disciples are with him. This is private time. And they ask him about the kingdom, when it's coming. Matthew says it's not just Peter, James, John, and Andrew, but it's all the disciples. And both say that it's private. This is... This is no more public teaching. This is for the disciples. And look at what they specifically ask in verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be? What things? Well, the destruction of the temple. And what should come after that? Or what should come before that? What will the sign of, uh, what will be the sign when all these things are being fulfilled? Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. Matthew says, tell us when these things are, things happen. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So there's two questions. When? When? And what will be the sign? You see that? These things is the judgment that's coming upon the temple. And what will be the signs before that happens? The when implies nearness. These disciples expected a kingdom. That's why they're asking this question. I mean, think about it. 
If Jesus would have said the temple is going to be torn down and that would have fit perfectly with their theology, they wouldn't have said, when's that going to happen? What's the signs? It wouldn't have been this, this perplexing way. They expected a kingdom, but they didn't expect what Jesus was saying. And in the disciples' minds, Jesus was doing exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do, and they expected the result to be an immediate inauguration of an earthly kingdom. And to the average Jew, the kingdom was not something that you prepared for. The kingdom was for the Jews. You get in it because you are a Jew. You don't have to prepare for the kingdom. The kingdom is for the Jews. It was a material and political kingdom that you were part of because you were a physical child of Abraham. And the Messiah was in their minds going to be some impressive leader like Judas Maccabees, yet greater. And he's going to lead the people to a great victory, reestablish a Jewish government, and God's ceremonial law is a centerpiece. And even today, a lot of them are still looking for the same thing. If you ask a religious Jew what they're looking for in the Messiah, they'll tell you three things. Here's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to restore Jerusalem and bring back all the Jews into the land. Number two, he's going to establish a Torah government, a government that will be governed by the, by the law. And Israel will be the center of all the world, Jews and Gentiles, governed by that Torah. And he'll rebuild the temple, and he'll reestablish worship, according to Jeremiah 33. That's rabbinical tradition. Two stages that they'll be able to identify the Messiah. First, he'll fulfill certain conditions. He'll be a, child, a king of David. A descendant of King David, he'll be completely immersed in the Torah. And second, he'll succeed in rebuilding the Holy Temple in Jerusalem and gathering all the Jewish people back in the land of Israel. At that point, and only at that point, do they think that they'll know who the Messiah is for sure. Which is why my friend Boaz says, if when Messiah comes back, if it's Jesus, I'll have no problem bowing the knee to him. The Messiah has to prove that he is the Messiah. And he'll prove that by being a descendant of David and successfully doing all these things that they expected the Messiah to do, including ruling in Jerusalem. That's the prevailing concept. There was no concept of God as a sin offering, which is why Isaiah says a forerunner may come, has to come to prepare them. And why John the Baptist preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so just... Like the Jews, the Messiah, uh, the the disciples being Jews were looking for a physical, earthly, temporal, conquering reign. But Jesus says instead of building the temple, he's going to tear it down. That that would create some questions, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? That's what's perplexing the disciples. The problem was not that they didn't expect a kingdom. The problem was the chronology that Jesus was giving them, which is why they ask when. The idea of an earthly leader was so ingrained that right before they enter Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he tells them the parable about a certain nobleman who goes into a far country. And Luke 19.11 says this. Listen to why Jesus gives this parable. Luke 19.11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. I mean, you can't get any plainer than that. Even in Acts chapter 1, after after the resurrection, 
when Jesus appears as the, as the risen Lord, the last question that the disciples ask Him is, is it now, Lord, is it now the time you're going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do it now? The disciples consistently didn't get the order right. A future kingdom after a pause was something revealed to them and taught to them by the Lord. And so here is Jesus saying He's the Messiah, and He's preaching and His miracles, and yet He had no army, He has no headquarters, no one was, He was not marshalling any plans to enact a Jewish throne in Jerusalem. And the disciples were, were not skeptical, but they're saying, this is new. When, when is this going to, to happen? When, when will the kingdom come and how will we know it? What will the signs be? That, that's their reasonable question. And the rest is the Lord's revealing answer. Look, if you would, at verse 5. Look at how Jesus answers this question. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Jesus begins to answer the when question. When these things will be. And he starts telling them, and it's not coming yet. I mean, this whole instruction is, is, is laden with time references. I just read you one in verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place, but that is not yet the end. You see the time reference? There are certain rumbling signs, but it's not yet the end. Look at verse 8. For kingdom will rise up against nation and... Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be earthquakes in various places and there will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. It's the beginning, a time reference. He says there will be persecution that will come in verses 9 through 11. And he says in verse 10 that while this will happen, the end won't come until the gospel is preached to all the nations. Look at verse 10. The gospel must first, another time reference, be preached to, to all, all the nations. He declares under this persecution, you'll have to persevere. Look at verse 13. You'll be hated by all because of my name and the one who endures to the end. Another time reference, till he comes. He'll be saved. All the time references say the same thing. It's not coming yet. It's coming, but not yet. It's coming, but not yet. Now, Jesus is going to describe the, the really bad days in verses 14 through 23. There's going to be, he tells it, it's foretold in Daniel. It's going to be traumatic and terrifying in verses 15 through 20. There'll be great tribulation as never before in verses 21 through 23. He's going to answer what the sign will be in verse 24 and on. Look at verse 24. In those days after tribulation, the, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling. Here's are signs. He'll answer what the sign of His coming will be, but first He corrects their chronology. He answers the question of when. And He says it's coming... 
but not yet. And he tells them what they need to be doing while they wait. Don't get so wrapped up on when the Lord is coming, or wrapped up in, I should say, when the Lord is coming. Be wrapped up in the work that you're commanded to do while you're waiting for Him to come. Might be a good way to summarize what Jesus is saying. He's saying the same thing that Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if it is from us as though the day of Christ had come. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's preparing them for His departure and the subsequent delay of the kingdom. He's telling them what they should expect and what they will do. He says they'll have counterfeits. They will have concern. They'll have opposition. And they'll preach the gospel. Look, if you would, at what Jesus specifically says. I showed you the time references. Now, he gives them three commands and one that's implied in verses 5 through five through 13. Look, if you would, at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. There's the first command. And then he tells them why. He gives this command, because many are going to come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Here's the second command. When you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be frightened. The command is do not be frightened. Why would you, why would he have to command you not to be frightened? Because you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Those must take place, but that's not the end yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places and they will also, there will also be famines. These things are merely the beginnings of the birth pangs. Here's the third command. Verse 9. Be on guard, but be on guard. Why should you be on guard? Because you're going to face persecution. For they'll deliver you to the courts, and you'll be flogged in the synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings, and, and for, for my sake, as a testimony to them. And here's the implied command, verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. In verse 11, and when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you'll say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now that's not, well, I don't need to know anything about the Bible, I'm just going to go open my mouth and then whatever pops out, is going to be of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to zap some words in my mind. That, that's ridiculous. That has nothing, that's, that's nothing what this is saying. This is saying that when you are a witness for Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who actually is the witness and speaks to the heart. It's not me this morning as if I have some power to witness to your heart. I am faithful with the Word, and the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that Word to your heart. That's what that means. 
Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. That's a lot of persecution, isn't it? You will be hated by all because of my name. And you'll endure. You'll endure that either. You'll endure either to death or until I come. But you'll be saved. Three commands and and then an implied one. So I, I think you say four. What does Jesus say after he corrects their chronology? It's coming, but not yet. To answer their question of when, it's coming. There's not yet. He commands them to be to be doing some specific things, commands and reasons. And there are four of them. And the first thing he says is, do not be misled. You will have counterfeits. Look, if you would, at verse 5. Jesus said, see to it that no one misleads you. Why? Because there are counterfeits. Many who will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they're going to mislead many. Jesus says, while, while history is waiting for him to come, There's going to be a barrage of false Christ, false messiahs, false teachers, and false prophets. That's what he's saying. Between my first and second coming, don't be surprised when Benny Hinn is on TV. That's what he's saying. You don't have to look very hard to see that reality, do you? I mean, throughout history, there have been been all kinds of people who claim to be Savior, the Savior of mankind, whether that's philosophers or systems or teachers or religious leaders, all promising, I can fix your life. And they'll mislead many, Jesus says. But you be aware. Be, be, don't be misled. This is going to happen. Even today. And you could mention others besides Benny Hinn, self-help gurus. That shouldn't shock us. But what does he command us to do? He says, be careful. Be studious. Don't be misled. That's the command. That's what Jesus' followers are to do in light of this reality. Keep your eyes open. Take heed. It's a call to vigilance. There's a lot of false stuff out there. Be careful what you're influenced by. What promises to make your life better may end up killing you, may end up misleading you. So how careful are you? Do you care about doctrine? Don't just think that that's that's just for preachers or TES students. Do you listen to people that you don't know what their background is or what they teach just because they move you? Be very, very careful, Jesus says. Jesus says theology is for all of his followers. It will insulate you. It will protect you. It will inoculate you from these false teachers that that are in the world. How will you ever know if it's accurate if you don't know the truth yourself? So, he says... While you're waiting on my coming between the first and second coming, don't be misled. You'll have counterfeits. He also says, don't be afraid. You will have concern. If you would, at verse 7, here's the second command. You'll have concern. Don't be frightened. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be afraid. These things must take place. These things take place. Jesus says, even though I've come the first time, the curse will still be in effect. And that's a really good way to summarize what's in here. Wars and rumors of wars and famines and, and all of these other things. He's saying, even though I came, the curse is still in effect. Men will kill each other. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Nature will travail. Food will run out at times. 
And this merely is the beginning of the birth pains. You think that it's hard now. Don't think that's the tribulation. This is just the the birth pains. Life after the fall has always been difficult. And that's part of the curse. Our hearts grumble at times. And and we say, why does life have to be so hard, right? And the simple answer is because of the curse. That's why it's hard. That's what the curse is. In the fall, the curse, it's, it's not that somehow you got a raw deal or that God's punishing you somehow. It's the way that it was going to go after the fall. It's not what God intended, but it's a result of the fall. You will work in creation, and creation will fight against you, right? I mean, one of the beauties of heaven is you're going to work, and you'll put your hands to work, and whatever you attempt to accomplish will happen. Go plant a garden and leave it there. What's going to happen three weeks or a month from now? Is it going to be beautiful and pristine? It's rabbits and and weeds and everything else. It's going to fight against you. Whatever you gain from your, your work, you'll gain by the sweat of your brow. Isn't that what the Bible says? That's why life is hard. That's why you take two steps forward and one step back. One step back. I don't like it any more than you do. That's why I'm longing for heaven. And Jesus is going to fix that one day. But He's not going to fix it now. At His first coming, He's going to fix it at His second coming. And Jesus is saying when you encounter that, this is not the future tribulation. That's coming. Wars and famine and rising kingdoms is a description of life between His first and second coming. You should not think the end has come. That's what he says in verse 7. That is not yet the end. So don't be afraid when that happens. Don't think Christendom has somehow fallen off the precipice. Don't think, oh no, how, how is anybody ever going to believe in Jesus with, with what George Barna says about the church and all of that other nonsense. No matter how clamorous and contentious things get, Jesus says, no matter how strong China becomes or North Korea threatens or Russia no matter what the new freshman congresswoman says about the world coming to end in 12 years, even if it does, even if global warming is real, it's part of the curse. And those things are normal events of a fallen world, and they will be nothing like the actual birth. Many evangelicals today getting off message and getting into green economy and famine relief, creating a better world, and that is not what God's called His church to do. Jesus says, don't fall for it. It's not the end. You'll have enough to fight against preaching the gospel. Third, he says, be on guard. You will have opposition. Give me what at verse 9. But be on guard. Why? (laughs) You're going to have opposition. Between the first and second coming, you are going to have opposition, Christian, church. For they will deliver you to the courts. They will deliver you. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. And you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Look at verse 11. When they arrest you. It doesn't say if they arrest you. When they arrest you and hand you over. Do not worry beforehand. Look at verse 12. Here's opposition. 
Oh, if it wasn't bad enough, God's people, the Jews, are going to put forth opposition. And the Gentiles as well, but it's going to be in your own family. You're going to face opposition in your own family. Brother will betray brother to death. One of the saddest stories that I remember was one of my best friends, his younger brother, went to a revival meeting and, and professed Christ and came home so excited about it, and, he, and the first thing he wanted to do was tell his big brother, and his big brother mocked him. And that little guy's countenance totally fell, and he never went back to church after that until five or six years later, fell into some deep, deep sin. Brother will betray brother. Father will betray his child. Children against parents. You know the saying, blood is thicker than water? Not if you mean the waters of baptism. The family of Christ, because Christ is, is who you're in. The, 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 the church is what will remain. Blood may turn on blood in opposition if you follow Christ. And look at verse 13. You will be hated by all. So why are we so blown away? whenever CNN hates on Christians. That's exactly what it says is going to happen. And here's the key. Why are they going to do that? Because you're jerks about sharing the gospel? No. Look at what it says in verse 13. You'll be hated by all because of my name. The more you live for His name, the closer you're associated to His name, the more Christ's aroma takes up residence in your heart until he, he changes you, the greater the opposition. And Jesus says those claiming His name will face opposition. Isn't it a crazy thing that we think when we get pushback or things don't go well, we, we immediately ask what's wrong? Isn't that crazy? That's what my heart does. What's wrong, Lord? Do I have some sin in my life? I mean, what's wrong, Lord? Do I, do I, do I need to change the way that I preach? What's wrong, Lord? Is there, is, there, is there some methodology we need, to, we need to apply? The first question is, is what's wrong? And I'm not saying it's bad to be introspective. You do need to look to see if you're, if you're failing in some way. But even worse, we tend to say, Lord, I'm serving you. Why is it so hard? Why, why isn't my bank account full or whatever? Lord, I brought my son or daughter to church every time the doors were open. Why are they not following you? And Jesus gives you the answer right here. They may not follow the Lord. Even if you're a perfect parent. Do you think God was a perfect parent? He was, right? Read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God describes Himself as a parent and Israel His child and Israel rebelled against Him. You can be a perfect parent and your children still rebel. The fact that you face this opposition is not evidence of God's displeasure, but it could be your faithfulness. Losing friends and family and job and money is all normal if you claim His name. Now, that's the uncomfortable part of Christianity, isn't it? And when all those things happen, you should keep going. Here's the implied command. Verse 10. 
the gospel must first be preached to all nations. In verse 11, you'll speak, but the Holy Spirit will witness. In verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 13, you'll be hated by all because of my name. And here's the enduring. What will you be enduring? You, you will endure to the end and be saved. What, what does he mean, endure? We'll endure all the things that he's saying here, but specifically his witness. Now remember, this is macro. Don't get lost in the weeds. What's the purpose of verse 10? The gospel must first be preached to all nations. What's the big picture? Does that mean that every person on the planet must hear the gospel before Jesus returns? I hope they do. I'm going to work till I die trying to make that possible. But that's not the, the big picture Jesus is talking about here. As I already mentioned, is it, does it mean that you, you don't need to know anything about the Bible when you're witnessing? You just open your mouth, the Holy Spirit will give you words. Does verse 13 mean the only way that you can be saved is if you endure to the end? You never fall away? That's not the point at all. Jesus is answering a question of when, and He corrects the chronology and says, this is what you need to be doing between my first and second coming. You need to, be, you need to persevere in the work. You need to endure in the work. And what is the work? You'll be my witness. The gospel will be preached to all nations. You'll be a witness whenever opposition comes before kings or whatever. And you need to endure in that work. You'll be a witness. You'll be an enduring witness. And you'll do that into the end, meaning until we die or until He comes. There's a kingdom coming, but it's not now. And that's His point. And there is a kingdom coming. And before you can ever get into that kingdom, you need to know the king, right? <laughs> and if you do know Him, you need to be about His work. You need to be telling others about the work that He accomplished. Have you ever met the King, this King, my King? <laughs> He's a wonder of wonders. He came into a world that rejected Him, the one that He created, that He was good to, that He never did a single thing wrong to. And even after that world rejected him and rebelled against him, he didn't give them what, he de what they deserved. He made a plan that he would come and become part of that creation himself. And then he would live in perfect obedience to God. And then he would offer himself freely to that creation while that creation rejected him and, and continued to, to want to live their own way. And all that was part of his plan, that he would, he would lay down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for you. He would take your place. The sin that you committed, Jesus Christ stood between you and God and absorbed the judgment that you should have received and then declared it is finished, it's accomplished. There's no more penalty that's necessary for those who are in me because I've taken it all. And then He sent out His disciples and His church even to this day to proclaim to that same creation that still rejects Him. 
If you'll come, you'll turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion. You'll turn to me. I, I, I can become your king. I'll forgive your sins. When I come, I'll come for you. You turn from being your own little king and turn to me being the great king and I'll wash you clean. And all of that will be available by faith alone. You don't have to climb mountains. You don't have to go to Mecca. You don't have to pray ten times a day. If you meet that king, that true king, you'll want to pray without ceasing. You won't want to pray whenever some yahoo on a, on a loudspeaker calls you to do it. It'll just come from your heart because he'll live inside of you. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. There is no, there's no joy in life apart from Jesus. And if you know him, you want to be about his business till he comes. Do you know him? If you do, are you learning the word so that you won't be misled? Are you discriminant? Do you discriminate against Bible teachers? You say, I, I am not going to listen to that. I'm not going to read that until I know who they are or what they are. I hope you are. That's what Jesus says to do. Are you reminding yourself of the curse that it's normal and so what's happening around you is not a cause to fear? Do you know opposition is normal and that it's not going to be an easy road? Don't pander to the world. Don't think that if you somehow make Jesus so attractive that an unbeliever will accept Him, that somehow they will. They will not. That is not the way to evangelize. And are you enduring witness? Or have you slacked off? Because you think everybody already knows. When I came to Lynchburg close to 20 years ago, I was told it's Jerry Falwell country. And I was told, you don't need to share the gospel in Lynchburg because everybody's already saved here. The first seven people I witnessed to when I came to Lynchburg, not a single one of them knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you witnessing? I hope so. Let's pray.